chapter 6. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles this morning, you'll find that on page 5. Genesis chapter 6, we'll be beginning in verse 9 and reading through the end of chapter 7. Genesis 6, 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood, make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof of the ark, and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which there is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, and your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sword into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. And take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and its mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring, offspring alive on the face of the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was six hundred years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with them went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God commanded Noah. And after seven days, the water of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened. And rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Noah's wife, 
and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, and every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land, in whose nostrils was the breath of life, died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. Let's pray together. Father, we pray today that as your word is proclaimed, that your spirit would fill the preacher. We pray today that as your word is proclaimed, that your spirit would prepare our hearts and minds to hear it, that in all of this, Father, your name would be glorified, and that we would be changed to be more like Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen. One of the purposes that God has in our suffering as human beings is to remind us that our hope is not in this world, to increase our longing for the hope that God provides, the hope of eternity, of heaven, of the new heavens and the new earth, of the ultimate end of sin and suffering, when evil will be fully and finally punished, and when we will live in, a perfect, in perfect peace with God and with one another as His people. That's one of God's purposes in suffering, is to increase our longing for that day and stop looking for our ultimate comfort and hope in this day. But how do we know that day will come? How do we know that a reward awaits those who believe? How do we know that punishment awaits those who reject the Lord Jesus Christ, those who oppress and persecute believers? Well, we might answer that question a number of ways. 
But the Apostle Peter points to an historic event to build our confidence that indeed that day will come. Listen to 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. If God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Now, there's more here, but I'm going to skip to the then part of the if-then. So, if God did that, verse 9, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. So Peter's logic is to people who need to endure, whose faith needs to produce a certain kind of fruit, who need to remember that we have a greater revelation in the Lord Jesus Christ, who are facing false teachers of many kinds, not just false teachers like, you know, logically, but they're leading them into false living as well. In the face of all these things, Peter wants them to know that the end will most certainly come. God will most certainly keep His promise. God will most certainly reward the faithful. God will most certainly punish the wicked. And do you need a reminder of why? Do you know, you know how you know this? In our day and age, Peter would say, well, didn't you go to Sunday school? Don't you remember the story of Noah? And the flood? If God did that, God will most certainly do what He says He will do at the end. That's Peter's logic. God can and will rescue His people from this world. God can and will punish the unrighteousness. So, our confidence should grow in this. In fact, our hope should increase as we read about the flood. The Apostle Paul says as much. He says the things that were written in former times are written to for our instruction. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So when we read the flood as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope ought to increase that God can and will do what He says He will do in response to the wickedness in the world. He will finally rescue and give rest to those who are righteous through faith. And so as we come to this flood, this familiar story, we see that God sovereignly judges sin and saves His people to accomplish His purposes. God sovereignly judges sin and saves His people to accomplish His purposes. All right? So, first of all, God sovereignly judges sin. We're just going to walk right through that statement one phrase at a time. God sovereignly judges sin. You cannot read the account of the flood and come away with any other conclusion. Not if you're honest about it. When we limit this story to a nice story about a man and his love for animals and to rescue them by getting them on an ark, this is, this is not biblical interpretation. 
Certainly there is salvation here. But is salvation through judgment? Some would try to minimize God's judgment, to explain it away. Even in some circles here, maybe you have found yourself leaning toward this as you speak to someone about the judgment of God and you say, no, 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 it's true, God judges. But we say it almost with a hint of shame as if it were a blemish on God's character that He is a judge. In the wonderful book, uh, Knowing God, J.I. Packer writes this. He says, speak to people of God as a father, a friend, a helper, one who loves us despite all our weakness and folly and sin, and their faces light up. You are on their wavelength at once. But speak to them of God as judge, and they frown and shake their heads. Their minds recoil from such an idea. They find it repellent and unworthy. But you can't honestly read the Bible without coming away with an understanding that God judges sin. God judges sinners. That's, think about what we see in this flood account. First of all, regarding God's sovereign judgment, God determines who will receive judgment. Did you see that? That's incredibly important. God determines who will be judged. Look at chapter 6, verse 13. God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. God has determined it. The end of all life, the end of the life of all in whose nostrils is the breath of life, minus Noah and his family and some select animals. It wasn't happenstance. It was the determination of God to do it. And why will God do this? Verses 11 and 12 paint the picture quite fully for us. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with, God, with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Corruption here is a word for ruin, a word for wickedness. Mankind has ruined the earth with his wickedness. There's not a square inch on the planet that's untouched by sin's corruption. He says the earth is filled with it. And the cause of the corruption apparently isn't limited to one segment of society. It's not on one side of the, or the other in the political aisle. It's not one particular family or one particular class of people. It's not those really bad people. This isn't just the line of Cain come to haunt the rest of humanity. He says all flesh has corrupted their way, verse 12. All flesh. You could, it's just an interesting study just to go through this whole thing and just look at every time you see the word all or everything, or everyone, every. It's all the same. It's all the same Hebrew word. This is meant to give us a very universal and full picture of what's going on here. But did you notice, look at verse 11. We can just blow right past it. Look at the first phrase in verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt, where? In God's sight. 
Apparently, a poll had not been taken to see what people thought about how society was going. Apparently, this wasn't just a matter of, well, the legal, the criminal court system is really busy these days. Things aren't going very well. No, no, no. The determination of how things are going on the earth lies solely and squarely in the eyes of the one who creates it and rules it and judges it. God has the last word on whether corruption has lodged itself in the human heart, in human relationships, in human workplaces, in human societies. Things may actually seem quite good to us, couldn't they? I mean, after all, as long as the economy's looking up, right? Things are going pretty smooth. We seem to be prospering. There seems to be peace, but... This is what God sees, as is recounted again in Psalm 14, verse 3. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. You see, the reality is God is not measuring one person versus another. So much as He measures human beings against the standard of His holiness. God is the standard against which we're compared. Do you remember Genesis 1? We are made. We don't even have the law here. God's not pulling out the law saying, look how you've broken the law. He, God has made us in His image. We are to be like Him. We are to represent Him so that every thought, every action, every word is to testify to God's character. And it is radical rebellion when we don't do so. So R.C. Sproul writes in The Holiness of God, when we sin as image bearers of God, we are saying to the whole creation, to all of nature under our dominion, to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field, this is how God is. This is how your Creator behaves. Look in this mirror. Look at us. And you will see the character of the Almighty. When we sin, we say to the world, God is covetous. God is ruthless, God is bitter, God is a murderer, a thief, a slanderer, an adulterer. God is all of these things that we're doing. Do you see how awful sin is? Sin is not just there are some rules out there and we have broken them. Sin is we are made in the image of God to bear that image, to be like God, to represent God. And every time we sin, we mar the character of God. We drag His image through the mud. Every time, men, you speak a harsh word to your wife, you dishonor the God who made you in His image. Every time, wives, you seek to manipulate and get your way with your husband, you mar the image of God in which He made you. Every time we complain about the boss at work, Every time we take a shortcut in our ethics to get things done quicker. Every time we drag other people's character through the mud, you know what we're actually doing. Is dragging God's character through the mud. By saying this is what God is like. That's what we're supposed to do. That's who we're supposed to be. And the entire earth is corrupt here. And so God determines 
to judge. He will judge all. Look at verse 13. God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. Verse 17, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh. Dear friends, consider our decisions from one day to the next. Something is not right simply because it feels right. Something is not right simply because I have, some kind, I have convinced myself that I have peace to make go in this direction. This is not what makes a decision right. Rightness and wrongness is measured against God's standards. He is the measuring stick, not me, not your spouse, not your neighbor, not those we pick and choose from society thinking, well, well I'm not as bad as them. Anytime we make a decision that comes out of seeking to serve ourselves, it is wrong. Do not believe the commercial that says you just need to treat yourself and do yourself right and you deserve and you, 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 you. Such theology takes those things and just, Christians will take those things and just baptize them in more scriptural sounding language. The rightness and wrongness of what you do in your work, the rightness and wrongness of what you do in your family, the rightness and wrongness of how we operate within this congregation. And by operate, I don't mean like in a business. I just mean the way we relate to one another. The way we will or won't seek reconciliation. The way we will or won't live, do everything to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. The way we're not gentle, whether we'll be gentle with one another, whether we'll be patient with one another, whether we'll, whether we'll bear with one another in love, whether we'll love one another, whether we'll serve one another, whether we admonish one another. All of it is not measured against what I think admonishing is or what loving is. It's all described for us here in the Scriptures. God has left nothing up to us when it comes to living godly lives in His presence. And so He determines to judge. But also we see God delivers His judgment. God doesn't just determine to judge. He's going to deliver. He doesn't, he doesn't outsource judgment. He's not going to delegate it. The flood isn't a natural phenomenon that God allows to happen. He delivers it. Notice the I will statements. Look at chapter 6, verse 13. Uh, the last phrase, I will destroy them with the earth. 17 of chapter 6, I will bring a flood. Chapter 7, verse 4, in seven days, I will send rain. And later in that verse, I will blot out. God is not simply predicting what will happen. God is saying, this is what I will do. So that when we read chapter 7, verses 11 to 12, and we read, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened and rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. By the time we get there, we're not wondering why it's happening. God is delivering on His promise. 
We know what's going on. And Job 37 says as much. God loads the thick cloud with moisture. The clouds scatter His lightning. They turn around and around by His guidance to accomplish all that He commands them on the face of the habitable world. Whether for correction or for His land or for love, He causes it to happen. And did you notice how complete God's judgment is? Just look at the first few words. You should have heard the repetition beginning in chapter 7, verse 18. The waters prevailed and increased. Verse 19, and the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth. Verse 20, the waters prevailed above the mountains. Verse 21, and all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out. From the earth. It is a frightening reality. God has determined to bring judgment on all. God delivers judgment. And this will be true in the end. You see, we read this. Isn't that, if you read that slowly, isn't that terrifying? Can you imagine how terrifying this is? And do you know in the understanding of the Bible what this is? It's only a pointer. There's something more terrifying than this. There's something to which this points that is far greater and far more permanent. This isn't the most terrifying of judgments that God has promised. God has determined that sinners will be consigned to hell for eternal conscience torment. And make no mistake, dear friends, it will not be Satan tormenting unbelievers in hell. Satan himself will be tormented. Hell is not the absence of God. Hell is the absence of God's mercy. God will be there in all of His wrath. Something we should think about and when we speak of it, speak of with trembling hearts.
The flood reminds us of the great and terrible wrath of God in judgment, that God sovereignly judges sin. Also, God sovereignly saves His people. With the same authority, the same power, the same fullness, the same control that God has in judging sin, He exerts to save His people. He sovereignly saves His people. Now, there are a couple of things that lie behind that word sovereignly that I will only mention briefly. First is that God is not obligated to save. There is no leverage that mankind has in order to force God's hand to rescue us from the judgment that we deserve. God saves as He pleases. Now, some would take issue with that. Some would question God on that and say, well, that's not quite fair. Why doesn't God just save everyone then? Well, now, think for just a moment. I think there's a better question to ask than why doesn't God save everyone? If none does good, if no one is righteous, if we cannot leverage anything from God, if we've all contributed to the corruption of society, if there is no good in us, if our mind it cannot obey the law of God, the question isn't why won't God save everyone? The real question, the more compelling question, the more worship-fueling question is this. Why would God save anybody? Why? The only answer we have is because of His goodness, His grace, His mercy. The second thing that lies behind this word sovereignly is that not only is God not obligated to save, there is nothing we can do to save ourselves. There is no salvation apart from, uh, from God's wrath, apart from God's sovereign action. Well, someone raises their hand in the back of the room and they say, well, now wait a second, doesn't that make us helpless? I mean, we can't do anything. Are you really saying we're helpless? No, the Bible is saying we're helpless. And that helplessness is meant to cause us to throw ourselves on the mercy of God. The only one who can help us. The only one who can save us. So that's what lies behind this word sovereignly here. But notice, we'll see about God's salvation actually the same things that we saw about God's judgment. And that is that God sovereignly determines who to save. Chapter 6, verse 18, God speaks to Noah and says, I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark. Chapter 7, verse 1. Go into the ark, you and all your household. Chapter 7, verse 23. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. 
And we saw last week, and I'll repeat it again, that this is because of God's grace toward Noah. Chapter 6, verse 8 says that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This finding of favor is not about the merit of Noah so much as it is about the goodness of God. It is about the one greater extending to the one lesser favor. It's, it's more like finding something you were never looking for in the first place. You go to a new city, right? You think, I'm going to you know, explore this city. I have this top ten list of great things. And you stumble upon some little dive that makes the best whatever it is that you like to get uh, in, in the whole city. And you just stumble upon it. You're like, how did I find this? It's just wonderful. Well, you didn't seek it out. You, did, you just kind of stumbled upon you. In a much greater way, dear friends, God's not just sitting there and we stumble upon him. God actually comes and seeks us out. We are the ones found. You once were lost, but now you're found. Not you once were lost, but then you finally got your spiritual GPS rolling again and you figured it out. No, 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 no. God came and found us. God determines and God delivers. God gives Noah everything that he needs to be saved and to have relationship with God. Not just to be saved from judgment, but to have relationship with God. So he's saved from judgment. Look at verses 14 to 16 of verse, chapter 6. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. This ark would be 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet high, very box-like. It would have a roof on it. Um, put pitch on the inside and outside, make it waterproof, put a door, put rooms, put levels, all of these things. He even tells Noah, just in case, uh, Noah, make sure you pack some food, all right? Put something in the cooler, all right? So chapter 6, verse 21, take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. God, God, God's provision... Gives salvation from judgment. God provides everything Noah's going to need and to have relationship with him. Chapter 7, verse 2, take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate. Clean animals, which is an indicator. This is pre-law, remember? So apparently there's some understanding that some animals are clean, some animals are unclean. And there are seven pairs of clean animals. Why? So that Moses can worship. So that sacrifice, which started with Abel back in chapter 4, will continue. Why seven pairs? Well, so that he can worship until such time as these animals can actually reproduce on their own and produce more clean animals. God has provided for his salvation, for his relationship, this is a wonderful provision of God. Not only does God deliver through His provision, He delivers through His power, God's power. It is compelling, isn't it, that God tells Noah to build an ark, and He does. He tells him all the rooms, He does. He puts the pitch on the ark. He says, put the pitch on the ark, He does. Why doesn't God tell him to shut the door? This is what a parent would do with any child, right? Shut the door. Are we heating the hole outside? Shut the door. Do you know why God comes along and shuts the door? The Bible doesn't tell us, but I have a great guess. It's to remind Noah 
that the only reason he's in there and going to stay in there and going to be secure in there is because of God's power. The only thing that's going to keep that ark from leaking and sinking is not Noah's ingenuity. It is God's power. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. It is God's power that will deliver, and it's God's path. How is it that Noah receives and enjoys this salvation? It's by faith. We see in chapter 6, verse 9, Noah is a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And then in chapter 7, God says, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Now, if all we had was this text, we might conclude that he's just better than everybody else. But later, we see Abram is declared righteous for a completely different reason. He's chosen. And then Hebrews actually explains for us what's going on here. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for, saving, for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. This walk with God is the same kind of walk that Enoch had. It is a walk of faith. Noah believes the promises of God. That what set, that's what set him apart as blameless in his generation. That's why he's the only guy that 2 Peter will say is a herald of righteousness. He's the only one preaching this. He's the only one believing that God's going to do what God says he will do. And how do we know it? Well... Chapter 6, verse 22, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. He believed the promises, and that faith showed itself by works. Chapter 7, verse 5, Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Can you imagine? Knock on Noah's door, and somebody's there, and it's Bob, the guy next door. And Bob says, Noah, you've been talking endlessly about this flood and the judgment of God. Do you really believe it's going to happen? Do you know what? Noah doesn't even have to use words, does he? He just points out in the yard. Well, there's the ark that I'm building. You tell me, do I believe? Isn't this what James says? Tell me you have faith apart from your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. There's a very real sense in which God doesn't just want us walking around proclaiming that we believe, we believe, we believe, we believe, we believe, we believe, we believe. There's a very real sense in which God wants us showing our faith by our works. Because actually, if our faith doesn't show itself by works, it's not the kind of faith that actually saves. It's the faith of the demons who believe that God is one and tremble. In the end, the story of salvation, both here and throughout the Bible, is the story of God from beginning to end. It's His prerogative. It's His provision. It's His power. It's His path. 
So friends, if you are saved from your sin, there is no room for pride. There is no room for boasting. There is only room for worship. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And as we share the gospel with our children, with our grandchildren, with our family members, with our friends, uh, there is the sense of our dependence on God to bring fruit should overwhelm us. It should drive us to pray. It should drive us to plead for the Lord to save. Because salvation belongs to the Lord. It doesn't belong to us. It belongs to the Lord. And if you're here, and maybe you're here, and you want to know, well, what does it take to become a Christian? Well, dear friends, you just need to throw yourself on the mercy of God. He is the only one who can help you. You're not going to learn enough to make it. The intellectual shoe is not going to drop. You're not going to earn it. The moral tally marks will never add up. You must take him by faith. He will be taken in no other way. God sovereignly judges sin. God sovereignly saves his people. So that third, God sovereignly accomplishes his purpose. His purposes. So we see these things. But doesn't it just beg the question... Why the animals? I mean, the clean animals, I got it, right? I got it. Clean animals, need worship, got it. But why all the others? And the answer is that there's more going on here than just the judgment and salvation of man at this point. There is something bigger here, and it's pointed to in chapter 6, verse 18. But I will establish my covenant... With you. That's the first time the word covenant appears in the Bible. We'll see it more fully later. But we need to get an idea here. Covenants are solemn, binding agreements that define a given relationship. And the kind of covenant that God makes with human beings is like that of a king with his people, where the king declares what he does and what he will do. And the people have, and the requirements that the king has for those who are in his kingdom. It's the idea of covenant is uh, basically the structure of the whole Bible. So that when we say, when you say New Testament, Old Testament, Testament is just another word for covenant. You're just, so that's what we're talking about. Every time we even refer to where to turn in the Bible, we're thinking in terms of those things on which the whole Bible hang. So when we come to chapter 6, verse 18, it says, God says, I will establish my covenant with you, which is singular in the Hebrew, with you, Noah, at this point. Now, the ESV says establish here, but the word is not, the verb here is not a word that's normally used for a new covenant. So when God says, that, that language is, I'm going to cut a covenant is, is the language that's often used. Here, God is actually saying he will confirm his covenant with Noah. 
God's confirming a covenant, a word that means that He is reassuring that a covenant that is in place is still good. But what covenant is that? I mean, you just, I just said this is the first time the word covenant appears. Well, it's the covenant actually that God makes at creation. The pieces are there. In Genesis 1, what is it that King, the King of the universe, says He will do? I will make man in my image. Male and female, I will make them. And He blesses them in Genesis chapter 1. And his requirements are this, be fruitful, multiply, have dominion over the earth, work it and keep it, right? Implying that they are to bear God's image faithfully in the world. And then you saw what happened, right? Adam and Eve immediately rebel. They break their end of the covenant and they are sinners in need of rescue. They're facing judgment. And here we come to chapter 6, verse 18, and God is not going to start over from scratch. You notice He's not going to uh, mold some new dirt and blow into it. He's going to maintain, He's going to confirm, He's going to keep what He said He's going to do all along. God's end is to have an earth that is filled with His glory, filled with men and women, faithfully bearing His image, in perfect relationship with him and with one another. And at this point, Noah will be a kind of new Adam. It's interesting, his family members are not said to be righteous. Only Noah is. But on the basis of his righteousness, God's going to save his family too. Saves his family, brings them along and as we'll see, I mean, you don't have to read very far before sin just has its corrupting way again. But the pattern is established. God's design to have His people in His place under His rule is firm. He will not abandon it, and ultimately He will fulfill it in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the greater Noah. He is not credited righteous by faith. Jesus Christ is actually righteous. Jesus Christ fulfills every righteous requirement that God has. He is not simply made in the image of God. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the visible image of the invisible God. He is the exact representation of His glory. He is God in the flesh. He's not one who merely stands out from His generation as Noah did. He stands out from all generations. He is the only mediator between God and man. And unlike Noah, who escaped judgment to bring salvation to his family, Jesus endures judgment to bring salvation to his family. Not a family of blood, but a family of faith. A family of faith brought together by a covenant of blood, Jesus' blood, shed for us. And Jesus will and is establishing a new humanity. His resurrection from the dead marked Him as the first fruits of that new humanity so that every time someone is born again by the Spirit, every time someone turns from their sin and trusts in, the new, in Jesus Christ, a new member of the new humanity is born. 
Friends, the judgment of God is terrifying and real and beyond our imagination. And the salvation of God is glorious and real and beyond our imagination. That Jesus Christ, the righteous one, would die for the unrighteous to bring us back to God. Wouldn't you turn from your sin and trust in Him? You see, one day a new humanity will live forever on the new earth. And God's purpose to have His people living in His place under His rule will be accomplished. God will judge the wicked. God will save those who are righteous through faith in Jesus Christ. And both will be carried out fully, and both will last eternally. And the flood is a pointer to that reality. So that we who are trusting in Jesus can have hope. Even in the midst of a world corrupted by sin. Even in the midst of a world that hates us because it first hated Jesus. We have hope because in the end, in Jesus Christ... In Jesus Christ, God sovereignly judges sin and saves His people to accomplish His purposes. Let's take a moment to reflect on these things and then I will pray for us. Father, we bow before you, recognizing that you are the holy creator and sovereign judge of all mankind, that in your hands lie judgment and salvation. Our lives are in your hands. The future of all of the world is in your hands. You sovereignly judge sin. You sovereignly save your people. And you will sovereignly accomplish your purposes. We tremble as we consider the judgment that awaits. To think of the flood as only a pointer to a greater judgment makes us tremble. That many in that day will be marrying and being given in marriage and living as if all is well and nothing will ever change. And then Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead.
Father, we pray you will convince us again and again of the reality of your judgment. So that as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have a deep and real and abiding sense of that from which we have been saved. And so that as ambassadors for Christ, we have a real sense of that which faces the men and women who reject the gospel. We are thankful and humbled and tremble at your sovereign grace toward us. All of our righteousness is as filthy rags, and yet you have crushed your Son to cleanse us from unrighteousness and to credit us with his righteousness. We are thankful that you have ordained that the account of the flood be written down, that our hope might be sustained and built and strengthened. The hope that you will bring all things to their rightful end. That you will fully judge, you will fully save, that you who began a good work in us will complete it to the day of Christ Jesus. Help us to read the account of the flood with those eyes. Help us to find hope in this terrifying and glorious story. And now we pray, O God, and praise you as the one who is able to keep us from stumbling and to present us blameless before the presence of your glory with great joy. You are our only God, our Savior. And through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we give you glory and majesty and dominion and authority. May it be yours before all time and now and forevermore. For Christ's sake, amen.